So welcome back to another episode with one of the best beverages in the world, Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is another episode of the Uptime Punks. And um, I would say one of the milestones in our little podcast history of not even less than a year. And we're very grateful for the support we get from the community out there. And we have a really amazing, absolutely amazing, mind-breaking guest for us for you guys here today yeah. um who's who's going to speak with us about the magic of data the and of data. and yeah. tim <laughs> anything else we should add no i'm just so amazed by how impressive he is because i i feel that we could have when like i mean 50 minutes is just not enough like you know anyways all i can say is tune in and get enlightened by the wisdom of Vikram, the chief yeah. data and analytics officer of PepsiCo. It's time for another episode of the Uptime Punks. And today we have with us Vikram Somaya, and he is the chief data and analytics officer of PepsiCo. Co. Um, many of you maybe don't even know how big um, PepsiCo is and um, to keep a, a business like that running more and more data is needed and that's what we're going to uh, talk about today and uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here Vikram. How are you today? Thank you Tim. Totally stoked to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, we've just talked about Indian food and uh, <laughs> old memories from Paul and you uh, of India. Um, but I guess we will we'll dig in later into that again. Um, just for our guests and uh, listeners to get to know you a little bit, um, we ask you a couple of questions and uh, you just uh, fire your response uh, real quick. That sounds good. Begin. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to it. Vikram, what was your first uh, mobile phone? So it was 1998. Um, I was just coming out of college and I got a blue StarTac, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I was coming from a pager. Uh, yeah, I was, I was one of those guys in college who had a pager. You know, in college, we had no phones. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, all, that's all we had. And I came and you know, I was moving to New York, just moved to the big city from college. Mm -hmm. And I got a blue StarTech, and man, I felt good about it. I felt good about man. it. You were the man. You were the man. I was the man. And then again, as, as, <laughs> as, as I think, as uh, as Paul mentioned, I you know I came from India, and over the years, you know, early on, you would get newer phones in Asia, right? So I I remember the first time I got a Sony Ericsson with a color screen, right? And I fly back to the U.S. and I'm sitting in a movie theater, and someone <laughs> looks over my shoulder and he goes, "Your phone has a color screen, man," and, you know. <laughs> You know, in, the, in those moments, you're like, I am a technology god, right? It was great. <laughs> yeah, Speaking about gods, let's speak about superheroes, Marvel or yeah. DC. Oh, Marvel, man. Yeah, I'm Marvel Ooh. all the way. And I, 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 worked, I worked for ESPN and Disney for four years. And one of the huge advantages, one of my favorite books of all time, um, I got onto this list. A friend of mine at Disney got me onto the list where you could go with one friend. And so my sons would always fight about who got to go with me. And you could go to an early screening of every Disney movie before it came out. So you would go to see, you know, these movies, you know, usually a month before they came out, you had to give them your phone, they sealed it. And, you know, it was a combination of press and a few executives would come and watch these movies. And 
you know, I, I grew up reading comics. I was a huge Marvel X-Men fan growing up. And then since then, you know, my children and I now will watch every single Marvel movie back to back. And then we will comment on it. You know, I have a nine-year-old, 12-year-old boy, obsessed, obsessed. And I got to say, I mean, Marvel Studios, crushing it, crushing it, taking a lot of these stories and manifesting them in meaningful ways with meaningful stories. It's amazing. Do you have any edition one? Uh, my favorite? No, do, I mean, if do you have any like first print comic books? I no, mean, no. Books? So I, I do collect but comic books. Some, I do collect look- comic books. I collected the stuff that I've always collected things that I love. I'm definitely a collector, as you know, as as I know, my camera is making it clear. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I do have comics. I, I'm not the guy who who went after you know the first episode of Amazing Comics. I admire it. I respect it, but I go after the stuff that I love. All right. And let's go over to the next one then. What is What was your first computer, your first interaction with the technology that we all, I, I would say, depend on nowadays? Yeah. Because without, uh, without that chip, nothing works. Um, it doesn't. Even your coffee machine doesn't switch on. So <laughs> No, it doesn't. I think my, my first experiences, and I had there are two first experiences for me in terms of my, my true love for technology and computing. Earlier on, it was these PC clones, you know, in India in the late 90s. That's kind of what you had. And I remember the first coding class I went to was for Logo. And, you know, you had to create something with the mouse. And it was really early days. But my for my first computer, that was all mine. We get to college, 1994, um, and we go into the computer store. And I get my PowerBook 520C, right? It was the first year on campus that they had Ethernet to every single room. And it was the first year that you could access email through Unix without a floppy disk. And I remember, so I had this, I had a color screen, right? Again, super cool. This tiny little color screen, I got 150 megs of, of, of total hard drive space. I thought I was so cool. I thought I was so cool. I would plug in. This was early days of HTML. I set up my first site. I bought my last name, domain name through this computer. Uh, you know, it really made you feel so cool. And in that first year, you would go onto Unix and then you would check who was online. And it was like, oh my God, I can see all these other kids at other schools. I don't know, it, it, it that explosion into the internet in 1994 through that little boxy screen, you know, it was a tiny little screen, like a postage stamp size screen on a full-size laptop, it blew my mind. Totally, yeah. it, it was incredibly exciting. And it, it really showed you how you could access knowledge in ways that, as I described earlier when we were talking, when you were limited to encyclopedias and libraries, which I was obsessed with as a kid, I was a total nerd, big reading freak. This now sort of just exploded your access to knowledge in yeah. infinite ways. It was an amazing gateway into sort of what lay ahead. So do you still go to Wikipedia from time to time or? Uh... Oh, absolutely. I pay for Wikipedia. I believe in you Wikipedia. I... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they need money to support what they yeah. do. And for those of you who, who don't do it, you should, right? I mean, this is how knowledge gets shared and how no one community or group can restrict the access of information. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, pros and cons to that, as we've seen in the world. But um, I think the, ac- the, the access of knowledge and our ability to use science to do the things mm-hmm. that we're doing now. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I got a vaccine one year after this pandemic started. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. I got mine just on Sunday, so um, still feeling my arm hanging down a little bit heavy. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, so, would you say this is what got you then really into the industry? That that like transition from the mobile phone. Oh, I'm the cool kid in the cinema to 
yes, I'm even greater. I have now the computer, with the colored screen. And, and then you were, is, is that what I walk in your curiosity? Like, how does this work? Do Obsessively. You... Yeah. So, I mean, remember, I, we didn't have cell phones all four years of college. So I was completely glued to this computer, right? And I was doing all these other things. I, I've been acting since I was seven. So I, you know, I continue to act until deep into New York, actually. And this is another way for me of understanding how people worked. Um, and I was an obsessive sci-fi reader, right? I mean, and I think for a lot of us who are futurists, everything that we think is marvelous and new and innovative has been written about by someone, whether it was Jules Verne or Arthur C. Clarke or you name it, right? They've come up with the idea. They've thought about satellites. They've thought about high-speed internet connectivity. They've written about it. You can go and actually read historically people talking about what's going to come next. And so for me, that notion of being a futurist was, was part of my DNA. I was always interested in what was next and how we would get there. Divide, you know, tools, whether it was the computer, whether it was using Gopher for the internet really early on, these little black and white screens with limited access, you know, these really early HTML sites, then Yahoo suddenly became these first compendiums of knowledge. And I, and I fast forward all the way briefly to where I am now, where we're thinking about knowledge systems for companies like the one I work for now at PepsiCo, where we have you know, 280,000 employees. How do you manage knowledge in a world now where knowledge is available at your fingertips, regardless of who you are? It's not limited by what you studied. It's not limited by what places you are in. It's only limited by your, your access to high-speed internet and a bandwidth. Which is a great... Um, which is a great link to the next question, actually, because uptime is um, is still our main light motif for this podcast yeah, called yeah. Uptime Punks, and all of our guests have their own definition, even though there is this official technic, uh, technical yeah, one. Yeah. So, I would like to ask you, Vikram, what's your definition of uptime? You know, it's a really good question, and it is one of those terms that can be very philosophical, right? What do you believe uptime is, and when I think about it, te technically it's system reliability, but it's what is your true output and where are you maximizing utility for your whole system? And I just don't, I don't think about it just technically. And I particularly have been thinking about philosophically this notion through the virus, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where we exist in this scenario where I think a lot about well-being recently, actually, yeah. you know, coming into the second phase. And for me, uptime is when your well-being is at maximum, yeah. right? Um, and the opposite of well-being is depression, right? And there's this great New York Times article actually from last week talking about how a lot of people are in the middle doing something called languishing, which is mm -hmm. you're not experiencing well-being, that constant flow of excitement and interest in the world, and you're not depressed. You're kind of in the middle, right, where you're not experiencing some of the stimulus that gives you those notions of well-being. And for me, there was connectivity to my teams and the people I worked with, physical connectivity, right? Mm -hmm. Being out in the markets, connecting with the consumers that I was so interested in, yep. you know, going to Dubai or, and understanding that whole market or going out to China and beginning to understand what's happening in new social commerce that, you, you know, yeah, sure, you can go online and touch and feel it, but it's different to live within the yeah. vitality of what's happening there. And so I feel like my feelings of well-being have been impacted, right? And I, yeah. I actually am I'm quite open about talking about how I have periods when I languish through this phase, yeah. that those of us who are in positions of, of, you know, who have the ability to speak to our people, tell them that it's okay. <laughs> it's yeah. okay to be not at maximum uptime right now, right? Like you're not maximizing your full utility because you're protecting yourself given what's going on. 
There is some PTSD based on what's happening in the world today. And on the flip side, there's all this incredible new innovation happening, certainly happening where, where we are at PepsiCo, but the speed of thought and the speed of interaction, if you cut out all the commuting and you cut out all the office time goes up, but that ability to trust people becomes harder to create, right? And I think the bill on that will come due over time for us. But it's, you know, when I think about the, that, the question you asked me, Tim, which is what is uptime to you? That notion that I'm operating as at the highest feelings of well-being, mm -hmm. it's, it's currently impacted, right? How do we get back to that as a, as a people? Yeah, how, how do we get back to that? What, what, what do we need to get back to that, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, what we've done, it, you think back to the last time that there was a, a pandemic like this, 1918, right? Yeah. It was crazy. I was reading something about the rules at the time, and the rules are very familiar, right? It was six feet of separation. Some of those base things didn't change at all. But now when we think about what we've been doing with our time, we have Zoom, we have uh, all these other ways to communicate. Um, uh, we have media, you know, un unending amounts of content that are being supplied to us by media companies, good or bad. We have gaming platforms where my children, you know, are spending far too much time probably at this point. But they're doing that because that's where their friends are, right? If they can't see them by going out of the door, they can see them in Fortnite. They can see them in Valorant. They can whatever the next thing is. That's an astonishing thing, right? And suddenly we're driving the speed and utility of all these things at full speed. And we're heading towards, you know, a future that was written about in Snow Crash or in Ready Player One or all these spaces where you have joint communal experiences. You know, we always talk about how innovation happens in war, right? When as a species, we're pushed to create things because of the circumstance. This is no different, right? And I think what we're seeing in terms of the way that work is changing, in terms of the way remote operating is changing, in terms of the way social interaction is changing, we're going to come out of this different. And you can't go back to the previous paradigm. I think some things are amazing and we should continue using them. And some things we have to find our way back to being a social people again. As you know, as humans, that's been very hard for me, certainly. I would imagine for, for you guys as well. I mean, for us, it's like, um, I mean, we're originally event organizers, right? And um, if, I, if, if you would tell me tomorrow I need to go and open up a venue and 40,000 people are going to walk towards me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would be like, Vikram, where's the next car? Let's get a taxi. I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for this. It's just yeah. it, it, like last weekend. So pubs and restaurants opened up. And so last yep. weekend, I went for the first time on a Saturday afternoon to the pub. It was a nice sunshine, sitting outside with people. There was maybe 80, 100 people in that yard. But I already felt overwhelmed because I had so many conversations around me. And I'm somebody that's, well, even throughout lock, lockdown, me and Tim, we continued going to the office because we said, okay, I know where you sleep. I know where you eat. I know that you don't go out. You know the yeah. same thing about me. So we sort of had like a support bubble to come together. Yeah, that was to your bubble. Office. Of course. Yeah. That was our bubble. And even for us who actually had that interaction, it was it was so bizarre for me because I felt so exhausted by the time I got back home because I was like, okay, that was that was quite a lot for me now. Yeah. And um, but the only thing that I realized is that everybody somehow discovered something that kept them a little bit of sanity during the lockdown period. <laughs> and this comes back to our lockdown gadget. So for everybody has somehow found something and 
I wonder what is yours because I see two bikes in the back. I mean, if you're going to say it's cycling, then you're the man. But um, if if <laughs> the good news, bad news scenario for that is I've been cycling for a decade. So cycling, okay. and, and, and again, not long, not longer than that. I picked it up as an adult, um, and I am obsessed with all equipment cycling related. Right. So yeah, I'm on bike eight and. Um, all of my bikes, I spent about a year designing each one. So, uh, you know, the last few have been, you know, the one in the background that you can see there is, is titanium custom that titanium carbon, but that's not the only part I enjoy. I enjoy the technology. I'm very curious about wireless, you know, it has all the latest, um, oh, 100%. But the other thing that I'm obsessed <laughs> about is each one is an art piece. So hmm. I work with the, the designers at the bike studio and I also work with painters. And for example, my seats come from this guy who works kangaroo leather in Sydney, and we build a theme for the bike, right? So the one behind me is based on Nordic myth, and we have runes uh, from uh, from Thor and Jormungandr and all these stories that I love. We have the Oruguras serpent that's oxidized into the titanium. Um, the other bike there um, is my weather bike, which was a tribute to the weather company where I worked early on, where, you know, again, data and cycling and being out there was super connected, right? As a cyclist, you know that the weather, you care deeply about the weather. And so that bike is all about the weather information. And so the whole thing has weather systems built around it from a painting perspective, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's again, combining this notion of how technology has changed cycling, right? Um, in so many ways and how you measure everything from a quantified self perspective. So things like, um, this is interesting, like this band, like there's a, it's, it's a company called Whoop. And yeah, they heard about it. Yeah, yeah, so really interesting company, right? And, you know, people like us are always measuring ourselves, right? Like, what does this mean? Yeah, there you go, there's a garment. So, it, <laughs> and, and this one has been fascinating for me because it looks at, it, it's, it's examining heart rate and heart rate variability. And it's building all these models around what your recovery rate looks like. This is a day when you want to push yourself. Here's what your heart rate's telling us about how you're doing. And for me, that became an interesting thing when you're stuck at home, like going from, you know, being you know, out there and moving and doing all these other things to having either sitting for hours or standing at your desk for hours and then having these brief, like, you know, explosions, four, five, six hours of writing. Like, what does that do to your body, right? And then my wife and I started playing around with, um, you know, we bought ourselves one of these mirrors with the AI gym built in. Because again, you're stuck. Oh, to your goal, right? that is cool. That's and again, really cool. it was fascinating to see sort of, you know, here's what you start experimenting with your body a little bit, right? Um, this is a weird time. I definitely went through, you know, let's be healthy, then let's not be healthy, then let's be healthy. You know, like like I'm sure everybody is going through this sort of how do you how do you manage the pandemic? How do you control the things you can control? And using technology as a way to measure how it's all happening, really, really interesting, right? And a privilege to be able to do that because again, you have a good job, you're connected to what you do, you're able to work remotely. I mean, one of the things that was very hard for us at PepsiCo was we have frontline workers across the world who have had to work through this process, right? So we want to make sure, again, if a process can be made digital, can be made virtual, can be made safer, we want to do those things. That's actually a great, uh, that's actually a great opportunity to ask. During the pandemic, uh, you as a chief data and analytics officer, how have you used data to, you know, counter all these... Uh, 
all all this stuff how did how did data help pepsico go through yeah it's a great I mean, question a i think question, the most... sorry for <laughs> no no keep going Tim. yeah no no it's it's a big question but we, we can make it maybe break it down a little bit uh into sure. into server but like just in general what's what what's what's data for pepsi at the moment yeah so i i think the the most important question became when the when the pandemic begins to lock you down there are a couple of things we want to understand all the behaviors we thought we knew about how consumers behaved and reacted to things just changed everything right uh, and when you think about sort of how folks actually process our products they're buying them in all kinds of scenarios right supermarkets small stores large stores convenience stores gas stations and some of those behaviors were not available anymore people don't commute right how does that impact our business we have a snacks business and we have a beverages business um, and you know, people when they hear the word PepsiCo, they don't realize how many brands that covers. To your point, right? This is a U.S. dollar seventy, about you know, high sixties uh, billion dollar business, um, split between snacks and you know, snacks like Lay's out of the U.S. What, and what are some of the most famous brands? Just 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 for the audience. Yeah, Lay's, Walkers, uh, Doritos, Ruffles, and then on the beverage side, obviously Pepsi itself, Mountain Dew, Gatorade, Tropicana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are just some of the brands that we have in those spaces. We have joint ventures in other spaces. And that it's, it's a wide variety of products there. You know, we're involved with Sabra Hummus. We're involved in Rockstar Energy. And there, you know, there are obviously new categories constantly emerging in which PepsiCo is playing, especially in the health and nutrition category. Yeah. We recently released a drink called Driftwell, which is designed for sleep. Yeah. Right. So there are all these new areas as we think as you think about the science behind sort of how food and beverage impacts us all. We have an incredible R&D team that you can speak to uh, who are really thinking about what flavor profiles look like. And, yeah. and then you match match that again. And Tim, this is where it goes back to what you asked me, which is as consumers change, two things became important. How do we make sure we understand what that change looks like and adapt to it? Right. We want the company to be agile insofar as that's possible. And then equally importantly, our company is huge, right? 278,000 people, 180 plus markets that we operate in, sophisticated, complex supply chains, literally from potatoes in the field, right? All the way through to bags and bottles in your local stores or online. How do we make sure that we have the same connectivity to that business when in a lot of cases you can't go to the offices and you have to communicate with your with your employees who are widely distributed in a way that makes them feel safe and protected. Yeah. So a lot of things that we had to consider coming in and, you know, um, you know, we've sort of made it through this year in, in, in pretty strong fashion, right? Again, we are in an industry where there was a strong rebound across the board. Yeah. Um, people are still buying these products. It was not an industry like, you know, hospitality, for example, that's, that's been very directly impacted by what's happening. Yeah. Um, and so, it gave us an opportunity to refocus on where are the areas in which we want to invest, right? And mm -hmm. digital has become a huge focus for us as, as for really any CPG company, right? I mean, here's an opportunity to rethink how your systems fundamentally operate and mm -hmm. how you bring it all together. So what do you need to do to make sure that that's happening at scale, especially when you can't be in the room together easily, yeah. right? And, and this is for a very global company. So I snack more during the pandemic, and I know that Paul does snack more too. But do, can you confirm yeah. that? Do people buy more chips and all that stuff, or is how did it change, like roughly? Yes. <laughs> the short answer. <laughs> yes. The next question is yes. People did. The good news more. is and, yes. And and again, you know, again, it's it's cultural. It it varies depending on how it works. We saw mm -hmm. more snack utility uh, actually within meals, right? So people are combining those things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, it, it's, it comes. It should come as no surprise to any of you that yes, that's a trend we absolutely observe globally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people are focused on it again, um, and there are other folks who can get you to get you into more detail around talking about which categories blew up and which did yeah. well. But across the board in the snacks category, we've definitely seen upticks. I, I mean, I'm going to ask the really stupid question if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, of course. There are no um, stupid questions, right? And now. I know there's no stupid question, but uh, I'm just thinking about the listeners what they would be thinking right now. Um, what is for you? What are for you the most important data points you try to capture from your customers is it um you're looking like the, the buying habit do people like to buy a six pack of pepsi or the four cans or do people prefer to buy bottles yeah um because i i well i personally would think that you probably sell more cans than you sell bottles um because um yeah everybody likes a really crispy cold bottle but the one thing i always prefer is a glass bottle Yeah. Um, so yeah. my favorite, I, I like to drink Pepsi or um, in, in, in glass bottles because that will be for me a highlight. But is that just like what are the data points? Whatever yeah. you like, oh, this is the data we need to try to capture because we can build a habit or a pattern well, out of it. So the, 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 there's the word that I wanted. I was going to use right. So patterns are really important to us. Clusters yeah. are really important to us. Uh, we all like to think we're all snowflakes. We're all completely mm-hmm. individual, but in actual fact, we can group folks who think alike, operate alike, react alike. To your point, Paul, you know, you feel have that same need for the glass bottle with the condensation dewing on it and have that moment, you know, Um, and others who don't, who process it very differently, right? And who believe that their brand presence is linked, you know, their Mountain Dew users because that's who they are or their Mountain Dew Code Red users because that's who they were, right? So, I mean, the, 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 we want to understand those differentials and we want to understand those groupings, right? Because if we can keep our eye on how those groups are behaving and how they're changing, because these are not static knowledge, this is constantly evolving knowledge, how do we better understand that, right? And in some cases, they're going to tell us. And sometimes they might tell us things that they want to believe, but they don't really do. So then, to your point, we also look at their behaviors, right? What are they buying? How are they buying it? Are they reacting to things that we're saying? Do they believe what everybody is saying? Um, are there gross cultural trends that are shifting the way people behave? And 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 which you know, in most cases now, you'll have multiple segments behaving differently. How do we track all those differentials in a way that we can react to? Right. So one of the one of the things that I love when we looked at the history of science is you know, data science now is used all over the place. You know, everyone's a data scientist, but you go back 15 years, there was no data science. It was statistics, right? And then advanced analytics. And now suddenly everyone's a data scientist. But that evolution happened really quickly because we ran out of the ability to manage data in a meaningful way within spreadsheets, right? We needed to use high quality tools. I mean, when I think about some of the other folks that you've spoken to, making that data available to people now at scale required us to think in ways that that required distributed knowledge, knowledge out of our head. And so it became this question of there's too much. How do we simplify it for different levels of audience, right? Different capabilities, different skills, different interests. Even if I think about the executives I work with or the employees and associates I work with at PepsiCo, there's different needs at different levels, right? And in some cases, you might go lower down and there's a very specific need, but they can go really deep. Or you go higher up and they want a better understanding from a heads up display point of view. I want the system to explain to me how to think about the future, right? And then you think about, you know, sort of the growth of analytics, right? You think about descriptive analytics or reporting. That That's what happened, right? Then you think about diagnostic. You think about why did it happen? 
And a lot of people mm. are now there, right? We're, we're understanding why things happen. But now we're beginning to say, okay, what can it tell me about what happens next? And then eventually, can the system just tell me what to do, right? Um, and can I trust that? And that's that's a big road to ride, right? And I think we're all in the middle of some part of that journey, which is uh, whether it's your company or your family, and you know we operate in a data ecosystem at home too. I know I do. Um, where where do we sit in that ecosystem, and how can we move things forward? And how do we decide where to invest mentally and you know financially and in every other way in each of those evolutionary journeys? And you know PepsiCo, like everybody else, is on that pathway. I, and then now I've come with CPG. And so I always talk about the fact that from a data maturity perspective. A curveball that nobody expected, not the aviation absolutely. industry, no industry expected it. And I think the companies that, that were able to, to use their data to analyze and see a way out of it, they're the ones who are actually going to benefit out of it. Because the data that you captured now over the last one year is data that's going to make a difference because... You know now how the consumer thinks, what do they want, um, what, are, what, are, what makes them happy, what doesn't make them happy. And especially you also see the habits. I mean, it's the same for us. We, we work in events. We fast data is also data is the magic. Yeah. Without data, then you don't have a business anymore in the future because data is what kept us as, for example, events organizers alive because we were able to run online events. We were able to do things like these podcasts and mail us out, engage with people. This is all data, right? Yep. And yep. But this, and we have built such a humongous amount of new data in the last one year. Then we built more data in the last one year than we have built in 20 years before that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we were forced to do it. And it was a gunpoint. And now it's a question how to use it actually as well, you know. Absolutely. So um, you know, yeah. it's funny. I we 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 we've been doing these ongoing education sessions with our executives, right? We we really wanted to talk to them, not just specifically about how it functions, but get everyone in a common vocabulary, yeah. right? Because some of these concepts are new to your point, or if you've been in a particular job for a long time and you're not thinking about it, how do we educate folks the right way? And we started comparing data to potatoes, right? Now, let me explain why, right? So again, we're a business that uses a lot of potatoes, right? We, we produce billions of potato chips. And we started thinking about sort of what is the right analogy to use? And not to be too simplistic, right? But how do we, you know, you heard about data as the new oil, data is this, data is that. So we're like data is potatoes. Why is data like potatoes? Well, you can have raw, right? But you often use potatoes in a more processed way. The value of the potato is in the potato itself. There is value to potatoes, just like there is value to data, even if it's most raw form, but you can process it in a million different ways, right? Now for potatoes, there's a hundred year old process. You know where to find it. You know how to quality check it. You know sort of what the process is. You know what a good potato is, a bad potato is. But when you ask the same questions about data, people are a lot less clear, right? Like what is data, right? Um, someone, I, a definition I like, it's, it's it's an imperfect description of something, right? And analytics is putting that together to create an insight. Now, the same thing you can do with potatoes or any ingredient, right? The, the raw ingredient is interesting, right? And let me use a simple example. So if you want to go to a grocery store to buy a Pepsi, right? How do you get there? You could use a street map, right? Super complex, very uh, high quality data to do many things not very useful to get you to a grocery store. You can go to Google and say, you know, where's the closest grocery store or go to maps. You could plug in the thing and look for, you know, turn-by-turn uh, -turn directions. Or, and I know you guys are into cars, you could get into a autom autonomous vehicle and say, take me to a grocery store, right? 
Yeah. Now, the map, you can do a million things with the map, right? You can find a grocery store, you can go to your, you can go on a on a hike, you can ride across the country, right? But with an autonomous car that has been programmed to take you to the grocery store, you can do one thing. Yeah. Right? But it's different qualities of information and processing used to do those things and it narrows down in function, but the the foundation you need to sit on for that autonomous vehicle is pretty crazy, right? So, and so, but the, the future of it, because it's it's reading consumers' needs, right? Absolutely. And, and is it for you guys also? Do you look like at the pattern of how many stores in a city sell your products, and to make sure that all the areas are covered? Yeah. Like, so, so you know everything that we do around understanding the consumer and understanding our customers, right? Because think about sort of how you typically access our products is through a grocery store, through an online store. So for me, what was interesting was, and you know, I've worked in a couple of different industries. When I worked in media, um, I was at ESPN for the four years that we went from being a TV powerhouse, which we still are, to having a huge new application with ESPN Plus, and eventually Disney put out Disney Plus, and we're beginning to see what direct subscription access creates, right? And in that model, you went from working behind your um, your your media providers, right? So in the U.S., it was companies like um, like Charter and others, where you got your internet service from or your TV service from. Uh, in the U.K., it would be Sky or others, right? But you were still constrained because you didn't have a direct connection to the consumer, right? Uh, you were going operating through these broadband or these TV providers. In the same way, we operate through retailers, right? So a lot of it is making sure we can give to our customers, in this case, the retailers, whether these are mom and pop tiny stores, right? In Turkey, we still have to cater to them, make sure that they have what they need and that our intelligence is being used, our knowledge of our consumer and our knowledge of how they operate is being used to ensure that the right things are on the right shelf at the right time, right? Whether that's a real shelf when you're walking down a store in Carrefour or Magnet in Russia, or, or you're walking into a tiny little store in India or Turkey or Mexico, to pick up exactly the drink you want, um, or you're going online, right? And you're saying there's a virtual shelf somewhere. Does it have what I want when I'm exactly in the right mode for it? Yeah, so it's interesting what you've mentioned before as well, um, because it ties in with the topic of, of data governance, right? What, what, yeah. what, what, how do you prepare the data? How do you, how do you yeah, it's, create it's rules a great that question. allow you to prepare it? So where do you see this data governance topic going in the next couple of you know, it's one of those Honestly. words which when, when people hear it, they just think bureaucracy, right? You're going to misuse it or misunderstand it or not trust it, right? And the worst thing that I think you can do in any system is to allow a mistrust of data to continue, right? And so, you know, large legacy infrastructure companies like ours often have scenarios where we're fragmented by silo, right? Whatever the silo is, whether it's a geographic silo or a functional silo, you're, you're doing a lot of work with integrating systems over, at, at, at scale. Uh, from my point of view, governance needs to be used proactively to say to the folks in the data user community, here are the things you can do to access information much faster than you ever could before. To do that, you have to follow a few rules, but within those rules, curiosity can take you wherever you want to go. Right. And, you know, for me, curiosity, optimism and patience in data are kind of the three qualities I care about the most. Right. You need to be curious in our space. And to your point, you know, what I love about our CEO and my boss, who used to be the chief analytics officer at Accenture, our CEO wants to know about what's happening in the world and how things are changing 
My boss is the same kind of person, right? She was in the early days of understanding AI. She's a PhD in it. Um, it's phenomenal to have the ability to go to somebody and not have to explain how the back end of something works when you're talking about a truly global program. And I think, you know, making sure you have the right kinds of people solving for these problems and a diversity of experiences. That's the other thing that I love, right? I mean, when you look at people like me and other companies, chief data analytics officers, there's a couple of different categories. One is a bunch of hardcore techies, right? Who've come up through a CIO, CTO track, through the technology track. Or you have someone like me that's never worked in a technology team, but has lived as a translation layer between a business and what's happening in technology today. And you start seeing the evolution where now applications are so much easier and more accessible to anyone in the company, right? It's not just the, the technologists or the data scientists who can use a high quality business application. Anyone can and should, right? So if we can get plugged in and understand the rules of operation, where do I go to find the data I want? Where do I go to find the analytics I want? Suddenly our only constraint is sort of what are the ideas you're coming up with, right? And that's the best part about being human. A computer does not come up with those well right now. They can help you with validation and scaling of these ideas, but we are still really good at, at synthesizing information in a human brain and then reanalyzing it, right? Artificial intelligence is basically the mimicking of human intelligence at scale, right? So if that's become such a big deal, here's why. We are allowing our brains to scale out and the best ideas hopefully are winning, right? Not always true, but largely true. I mean, it depends who you, you know, on what list of major. No, I think the climate is the major challenge that, we're solved, that we need to solve today, right? Um, yeah. uh, just to be very frank, everything else should be secondary to that to some degree as a, okay. as a human people. Yeah. Um, but can technology get us there? Yes, it can help, right? And what it can do is socialize the truth of the story. I mean, um, you know, again, I worked at the Weather Channel for, for three years and we looked at, you know, we looked at these patterns. It was the first time ever that that company released a statement about the science behind weather. And the company was the weather company, the Weather Channel. Yeah, yeah. And it, it waited until I was there in 2000 something to talk about this, right? Yeah. I mean, the science is clear. And so this again becomes a question of this, this, if the belief in science is fundamentally being contraindicated in a bunch of places today, how do we solve for that as a people? Uh, and again, I think the tech community has a particular responsibility to ensure that knowledge is shared in the safest and most transparent way, especially in a world like today where Sometimes truth becomes a fungible concept, you know, depending on where you're getting it from. Truth mm -hmm. should not be fungible. Facts should not be not facts. So uh, again, as we as we look at big tech and some of the, the things that they're going through in, in the world today, I think making sure that as a people we are organizing in the right way is going to be really important. And you know, every t every new system that comes about, there's a new way of people interacting, right? I mean, I, I, we have a generation of kids growing up on gaming and YouTube at this point, right? That's where they're getting their primary media from. Their modes of interaction, I look at this last year, and usually I don't like using my kids as a, as a segment, but we all, you know, when we have them, we do. Just watching the way they interact now in a digital fashion, right? Reminds me of a hundred books, right? Uh, books like Ready Player One, where everyone's living in this AI-based, you know, alternative reality universe. And, but we're living in that right now. We're all sitting in our homes and working through and all, this is like second life come to life, right? Magic, you said data is magic. I love that term because it was Arthur C. Clarke who talked about, so magic is just science that we don't understand just yet, right? That's that's magic. And, and a lot of data, depending on who you are, it looks like magic today. I mean, a, a lot of technology looks like magic today, right? 
Um, sometimes the things we take for granted, our app ecosystem on our phones, right, whether it's Android or Apple, go back 20 years and show that to someone, right? <laughs> 20 years. Oh, that's why, yeah, but that's why data is the, well, we used the term oil, but that's the wrong one. Data is the sun. And data is what's going to feed the generations to come. And I think data is going to be which people like you, Vikram, will pass on to the generations to come. And with saying that, um, I think we come to our closing statement. Yeah. And I would like for you to leave um, not just data behind, but I would also like you to leave some um, wise words behind for the generations to come. And uh, yeah, yeah, the statement is all yours. Look, I, I think we're in such an early, exciting stage, right? We're like the um, we're like early explorers on ships going out into unknown oceans of data, saying, you know, there's lots of amazing things out there. We don't know exactly what they are, but we're ex we're just beginning to understand what's possible. That's we have to remember that is where we are in the data space, right? We are like the earliest explorers. We're running around with stone axes and early ships, uh, and you know, in the future, our spaceships and submarines and, and nuclear battleships and the internet, but we're not there yet with data. Um, and so again, to your notion about what is a human, what is a person, how do we interact in ways now that we have this power available to us that data provides us with, now that AI is beginning to allow us to predict the future in meaningful ways, right? Because of the vast amount of information that we can gather. Um, we, we have to be curious, we have to be human, Uh, and we have to be patient, right? Um, and and for me, as as my career has been in this early exploration, it's it's an incredible legacy, right? Um, having said that, we now face meaningful challenges to us as a species, right? Whether it's climate or or or, or health or all of these global pieces that we have, and data. To your point, is the sun in that it has obvious um, value and it has less obvious value, and we have to find out how both of those things can be used the right way. We need to use everything we have, right? And there's a lot of smart people to do it. Thank you so much. And yeah, we hope to one day we can do this in person over a cup of coffee or on a, a cycling trip um, around lovely New York. That would be um, great, man. I'd be happy to do that for you. I, I, I don't think there's any podcast while people are cycling. I mean, this would be a niche. <laughs> I don't know how the recording is going to work out. But um, yeah, thank you so much, Vikram. It was a great pleasure for you to come on this podcast. And yeah, thank Th you. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Well, I thought he was more of a DC comic guy, but um, no, he's a Marvel guy. Who would have seen that one? Head as well. And he's a sneakerhead and he's a cyclist, Tim. That's it. You need to get a bicycle, mate. I mean, it's... I have sneakers, yeah, mate. I'm good. I'm good with Free Crumb. I, I have sneakers. I, 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 I love Marvel as well. Well, I, I'm not a fan, but I love the, I love the film. Anyways, um, what an impressive episode. Um, We would like to hear from everybody their takes on yeah. it please yeah. reach out let us know what, what you think we miss actually because i i know there were some 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 um sometimes we 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 could have gone deeper i know and sometimes there were we 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 opened up topics that could have gone further but all this stuff is limited to 15 minutes only so if you want to know more about this stuff and if you want to tell me and tim how to do our job better 
please. Yeah. No, drop Send us a DM. You have. And then we maybe can do a second episode with Pepsi someday in the near future. And then we can maybe, um, yeah, just let us know what questions you would like to yeah. um, have. And, then well, we'll... and with that said, please feel free to subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Music, and reach out to us on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. And stay positive. But negative yeah. as well. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>